Right then, hello everyone, and welcome back to Dutiful Future. Uh, that's right, it's time for another episode. You can put down your essays, quit off the Deliveroo app, and put down the uh, cheat sheet that you use for your weekly family quizzes, and it's time to listen for another great episode here. I have with me uh, the fantastic um, senior political reporter for Business Insider, Adam Payne. Adam, hello. Hello, uh, thank you very much for having me. Um, I hope you and all your your many listeners are well um, and holding up okay in these very um, obviously bizarre and not particularly pleasant times. But um, it, uh, thank you very much for having me on. I'm very flattered. Uh, Thank, thanks for coming on, Adam. I hope you're, uh, everything's well with you uh, as well, of course. Um, so today's episode is going to be, the theme of it essentially, or the title is going to be um, COVID and Brexit covering the crises. Um, so what I've got for Adam is a lot of questions about the differences between covering you know, these two major events that we've had brexit and then now covid back to back but then as well as just general questions about you know your life as a as a political reporter and journalist and uh, your progression as well um so the first question i think i have is pretty simple what is the life of a daily politics reporter both pre-lockdown and now that things have kind of gone on their head goodness um what a good question to start with um i well let uh, very clearly some massive practical differences so firstly up until what seven weeks ago i was in parliament um four days a week so my day would be i'd get up quite early in the morning i would um write some news in in my house um in london in north london and then i would make my way to parliament and then when you're in parliament you have quite a clear routine of you have the lobby briefing at lunchtime and for those of you who don't know I imagine it might be quite a lot actually um that's when you question a prime minister spokesperson and then you do that and then in the afternoon you might go and have coffees with MPs and various people so it was a very you're up and about a lot you're doing a lot of you're not at your desk a lot or at least I wasn't I was doing lots of going around parliament meeting various people working on stories etc now Obviously, the big practical difference is that I'm in my bedroom in in London um, every day. Um, I'm doing a lot of a similar thing. So I'm still tuning into the lobby briefing early. It's over the phone um, with all the other political journalists. And I'm still speaking to MPs and whoever else. But um, on Skype like this or on Zoom or one of the one of the other forums which have kind of <laughs> exploded into life in these last few weeks um, you've exposed us for using skype i'm sorry everyone i know it's outdated <laughs> yeah exactly well, no 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 it's good to, it, it's a classic it, it, it's good to see you stay, stay in <laughs> the original um and i guess as well obviously i don't see my colleagues so what i really like to do um at, at the beginning of the week me and my two colleagues on the business inside of politics desk will have an ed editorial meeting where you we'll sit in parliament in park Collis house which is where the cafes are for any of your listeners who have been to parliament or perhaps you you, you have as uh, yourself and we'll throw some ideas around we'll discuss what we're going to do this week and when you're in parliament obviously you'll pass mps and you'll pass people and that might be how you strike up a conversation which leads you to a story or something you want to pursue obviously that um, element of the job has been shelved um for the foreseeable future um so I, I guess the differences are practical in terms of what i'm actually doing as a journalist and 
I guess going into, and this is true of every journalist, I mean, uh, but going into this crisis, this national crisis, I was hoping to continue my reporting on Brexit because that's what I've been doing, not exclusively, but largely I've been writing about Brexit for the last 18 months or so. And I was I was planning on continuing that reporting into future trade, you know, trade relationships and preparing for the end of a transition period. Uh, but that obviously has been not completely put to one side, but it is no longer the priority. Um, we've had to adapt to this completely new subject and get to grips with it. I've never reported on health or science before. So it's a lot to get used to. Um, so they are two, that's probably quite a convoluted way of saying it. it's two very different, very different worlds. Um, but isn't it for everyone? I mean, ev the vast majority of people have been thrust into something they're not used to, something completely, completely different. I, I, I do, I do miss Parliament. I miss obviously being around people, kind of the atmosphere of Parliament. Um, hopefully we'll be back there soon, but I mean, realistically, it probably won't be for, you know, for a long time. So you brought it up there, you know, a lot of your, a lot of your job, a lot of your stories rely on, I guess, um, meeting and then chatting to and, ha and you're happening upon um, politicians, MPs, or, you know, people, people around them. Uh, is now this, this social distancing making it far more difficult to, have this sort of these sort of insider relations that are required for um, you know having a finger on the pulse, I guess, in politics. And if so, uh, how are you and yourself and your team adapting to this? That's a good question. I think that there is, as I said, there is an element of my job is you'll be sat in Parliament and you might just pass someone who you were meaning to speak to, or someone might recognise you, or you might recognise them, and you, you approach them, you have that conversation, that might lead to a coffee or a phone call later in the week, and that could be kind of the seed um, which grows into uh, a story eventually. Um, obviously, that's gone now. I mean, it doesn't... I, I'm still making lots of phone calls. I'm, I can still ring press offices. If I want to get in touch with someone, I, I can find out their phone number quite quickly. But I guess what I'm having to do now more of is rely on the pool of sources I already had. So um, let's take the Conservative Party, for example. Um, I've got a number of Conservative MPs who I speak to. I have their phone numbers, their email addresses, perhaps the contact details of their staff. And I can get in touch with them um, quite easily because I've, I've, I've established a relationship over time. Whereas now, if I wanted to establish a relationship with someone else, that's harder because I can't go for a coffee. Um, I, it, I can't have that same, it's harder to establish that relationship because as, as you know, Hugh, it's easier to establish rapport with someone in person mm. rather than trying to do it over the phone. So I guess it is harder to establish, um, to establish new relationships with people, particularly um, MPs but at the same time as I said um, still having phone calls still do my best to um, but it's, it's difficult you know obviously journalism journalism is a very multifaceted profession it's about writing it's, it's about research but a big part of it is just meeting people and, and having a, a particular set of social skills a lot of the time and when that's kind of taken out of the picture when that's taken off the table as it were you do have to adapt to that it, it, it's a significant change to the way you do things and to be honest I, I still think I'm adapting to that and you know I'm trying trying to make it work
Mm-hmm. So you know, another thing you've you know had to adapt to, as you said, you you've been a uh, Brexit rider for the last eighteen months, and you know, obviously, in you know, once COVID started becoming you know a problem uh, around this way, you know, the issue with Brexit doesn't just stop. However, you know, obviously, the the, the focus now is entirely on uh, on COVID. Have you felt much pressure in terms of? not being able to cover these sort of things or is it is there very much a stop start button on the sort of um on the brexit coverage straight over to the covid one was it a very quick transition or is this something where you're still keeping your eye on um what potentially could be developing which we you know we can't necessarily see yeah i mean that's i guess when it became clear how serious coronavirus was going to be and when it became clear to journalists, to us, that this is going to be a massive story and it's going to be the massive mm-hmm. story for a long time, there was, I think that was quite instant. It was like, right, let's channel all of our focus, all of our curiosity, mm-hmm. quite literally all of our resources into writing about coronavirus. And that for me, what does that mean for me? Well, obviously, I'd established a lot of contacts in the world of Brexit, so trade and um, mm-hmm. uh, finance, like MPs, blah, 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 blah. Um, but also I'd established just a knowledge of the subject. So from writing about something more and more, when something becomes your beat, you just become um, not, pre- not, I wouldn't describe myself as an expert, but there are certain things I feel comfortable talking about, um, like supply chains or, mm. or the single market, things like that. So when you've got to suddenly instantly <laughs> kind of flick that switch off, mm-hmm. it's quite, I found that quite difficult to do because practically speaking, I had to change what I was doing every morning. So I wouldn't be reading the same newsletters or reading the same publications mm. or looking at the same sort of Twitter feeds. I'd be completely changing my, uh, my, my consumption, you know, what I'm actually reading. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess for us, because we are, we are a three-person desk, quite a small politics desk, I guess, relatively speaking. We were just completely focused on coronavirus. I guess for the first three weeks, when not just the United Kingdom, but countries across Europe and elsewhere were just shutting down their economy, shutting down their borders. I guess in the last few weeks, the news cycle has slowed down somewhat. Mm-hmm. And that's given me a chance to kind of dip my feet back into the world of Brexit and for anyone you know who if you were to if you were to like read what I've written in the last few weeks you'll be able to notice that some Brexit stories have just started to pop up um started so to, to sift them back in <laughs> exactly yeah um so I've been able in the last few weeks to kind of um see what's going on in that world catch up with people see what's happening because it adds you know just in reality um although coronavirus is clearly a massive story, the biggest threat to this country, well, since World War Two, we'd probably say Brexit and the trade negotiations are still happening um, somehow or, or in, in the background. So I think now I've actually reached quite an, a place where I'm quite happy with, whereby the, when I wake up in the morning, the first thing on my mind is coronavirus. Um, but then when we get into the afternoon, uh, and I'm looking at kind of original reporting, some interviews, some th- other things I can do. Then I'm able to focus on Brexit or perhaps party politics. And at the moment, I've got quite a nice balance. Whereas a few weeks ago, it was just 100% relentless mm-hmm. COVID, 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 obviously. And um, 
that was quite quite a jarring shift, I think, because I just had to basically take everything I was going to work on, throw it out the proverbial window. Um, but now I have reached, as I said, over these seven weeks, um, I have reached a place where I feel like I can focus on the things I want to focus on and also do what's necessary, write about what's important when it comes to the coronavirus. So um, you brought it up there to, to a certain extent, you know, the the differences in covering, um, you know, going from all about Brexit to all about coronavirus. What would you say is the has been the biggest difference so far? I brought some of the practical aspects. Um, what's what was your, I guess, your your biggest shock in terms of transitioning from one major issue to the next? But then also, was there, were there any changes in in spirit in in sort of the attitude towards covering the crisis, the the two um, situations uh, in comparison to each other? Oh, that's a good question. I think that with Brexit, although, I, well, let, let's handle the similarities first. This is, how, this is how my mind works. So Go for it. The similarities, both subjects are quite are technical. They're, they require you not just to have a knowledge of party politics. It, mm-hmm. it actually, so Brexit required me to really swat up on things like trade and how supply chains work and where we get our food and our medicine uh, and how the cro- the channel crossing works. And that took time to, I wasn't able to write about that sort of thing until I did at least some degree of research into it. Um, COVID I think is similar in that you have to very quickly, perhaps much more quickly than I had to with Brexit. Um, I had to really quickly get swatted up on things like um, what these scientific bodies are and uh what we actually mean by pandemic and you know how the how how just the science behind it so those things are similar in terms of how different it's been i guess with brexit that was even though brexit negotiations were happening in brussels and london and we're talking about negotiations and policy decisions which are going to have massive impact for our economy and just our global standing that was still very parliamentary based. It was all about parliamentary votes. Um, you know, does Theresa May have the numbers to do X, Y, and Z? It was about amendments. Um, Christ, do you remember the heady days of like the Grieve Amendment and all, and all that stuff? Oh, the, the, the good old days. The heady, exactly. The heady days of the Grieve. We didn't know how lucky we were. Exactly. Uh, and the Letwin Amendment as well. Um, so I guess with Brexit, that was very parliament based and mm-hmm. i don't think i would be able to have covered it in the same way at home like i am now because so much of it is just happening in parliament um but with covid with the coronavirus li- very little of it i mean obviously this is a practical consequence of the fact that parliament's not operating as it usually does but i think the coronavirus as as an issue ha- isn't really a one that's focused in parliament at the moment obviously mps are um holding the government to account so you you'll follow committee sessions and what's happening in the house of commons but a lot of the stuff which is happening with coronavirus is happening in hospitals or in care homes or um in the last few weeks i've written stories about funeral homes i've written stories about small companies who are trying to um produce Face masks for the government. <clears throat> Apologies. Um, yeah. So it's been less focused in Parliament, I think. So that 
although it's a political issue, mm. it's not as political in the sense that it's focused, centred in Parliament. And I think a second thing I'd say is that with Brexit, it was it was very tribal in the sense that it was very much connect, kind of it very much overlapped with party politics, mm-hmm. and not just party politics, but you'd have a group of MPs. You know, it was very almost um, factional. Yeah, factional is the word I'm looking for. Yeah, it, and that was a big part of it. Like, what's this group of MPs up to right now? What, what's Hannah Subri doing? Mm-hmm. Alternatively, what's the ERG doing? Or what are the pro People's Vote Labour MPs doing? Blah 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 blah. But with co- with coronavirus, um, there's an element of party politics in that Keir Starmer now is saying that the government has been too slow. Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. But really, it's not party political in any other way. Um, so obviously the government is under pressure for how it's handled things but it's not party political in the same way that other issues are so you're not thinking to yourself oh I wonder what Ian Duncan Smith thinks of this (laughs) or I wonder what um, I wonder what this influential MP or what this cluster of of Mm -hmm. SMP MP like you don't don't view it through the same lens Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that is is a difference and thirdly and you know I, in my mind just now, I, I said, should I say this? But I think that coronavirus is just really depressing. Like, like, I think one thing it doesn't get, like Brexit at times can be quite frustrating. And there were nights where you'd be in, in Parliament until the early hours and it felt like nothing was being done and that the country was divided mm-hmm. and that our political system's bloody hopeless. And it was kind of really deflating. But then the next day, you'd get up quite excited, like, right, you know, I've, I've got this interview today, I've got this story I'm really excited about, or we've got this, I don't know, this House of Commons vote, which is going to be on a knife edge. But with coronavirus, as a journalist, it is very challenging, because it is just a grim subject where you're writing about people dying, and outside of your room or wherever you happen to be working, you'll probably know people who've been affected by it. So I think I've never, I mean, I've only been doing this job for... I don't know. God, it feels like a lifetime, four years. And uh, but I've never known a subject where you have to really manage your emotions and really check your own kind of mental well-being and things like that. So that's a that's a big difference. Although Brexit was exciting and, and infuriating, and if depending on what side of the fence you were, sometimes you'd be ecstatic, other times you'd be miserable. But with coronavirus, is different. It, it's not. It's um, it's much more emotionally challenging, I think. I think, um, you know, when looking at the two issues, like, side by side, uh, and, you know, how, you know, your experiences in covering both of them, as you said, um, as, well, now you have a lot more concerns about, like, mental well-being and those sort of issues. I think um, it's almost like looking at them, looking at them both and thinking, you know, British politics, and this, these these issues went from, you know, a tragic comedy to just a tragedy. Um, yeah. And that has, has really changed um, how... It, it can be covered and obviously you know these divisions in parliament that you saw uh in brexit which are obviously less of a thing now i mean translates into the public as well where brexit was such a divisive issue but now um especially you know well not especially during covid there are extreme calls for this you know unity and um getting behind the government and these sort of things do you ever feel this sort of pressure to be more positive and to be more you know rallying together you, know, you see some people criticizing journalists saying like oh 
you shouldn't be reporting on these very depressing things. We need to rally together and unify. Is this, is this a real? Is this a pressure you ever feel from uh, from the public or anyone around you? Um, you know what, Hugh? Um, I, I've seen actually. I've actually seen a Facebook status. Um, I think it's gone viral a few times. I think it's been screen grabbed and put on Twitter, and it says something along the lines of what you were just kind of paraphrasing that journalists need to kind of read the mood <laughs> of the public and be more optimistic and kind of get behind the government and while i can understand where that comes from i just i i personally think it's complete nonsense and i and, and i'll and i'll tell you why um firstly and i get this this is a philosophical point mm-hmm. um when you think about the nature of the decisions the government is making right now decisions which are literally it's not flippant or kind of glib to say that it's it's life or death decisions mm. they're making at the moment. Just the idea philosophically that those decision makers shouldn't be held to account in an incredibly thorough, thorough, but also in good faith, in, in, a, in a fair way, but in a thorough probing and at times aggressive way, if it's warranted. The idea that the government shouldn't be held accountable in that way, I just find mind-boggling I, I, I couldn't think of a time where an empowered kind of dogged press is, is more appropriate really mm-hmm. and secondly I actually think Lewis made this point when he was on when he was on your Lewis Goodall who's now with the BBC formerly of Sky um, I think it, and, a, and a lovely guy and fantastic journalist um, he made this point when he was on your podcast so I'll try not to completely plagiarize him but um, <laughs> go for it because <laughs> Often, some of, some of the abuse I see directed at journalists on Twitter or, I mean, sometimes at me. I mean, I don't get any near as much as abuse as some journalists do, but um, particularly women. Um, a, a lot of the time, their criticism will be, well, I don't like that question or I don't think your question's fair or, or, or you're, you're, you're repeating yourself. We've heard that before. And I guess there's a difference. And this is where I will sound very similar to Lewis. There is a difference between the public interest and what the public is interested in. For mm-hmm. example, I'm sh- I'm sure, and I can understand why some people might be really bored of hearing about PPE. It's all they hear every bloody day: PPE, PPE, mm-hmm. and journalists banging on about it. Um, but there's a difference between being interested in something, finding something engaging, kind of um, I don't know, fascinating. And then that subject, pursuing it because it's for a public good, because if we don't hold the government to account enough on PPE and PPE failings end up contributing to unnecessary loss of life, then that is a failing of scrutiny, I think. So there is a difference between another example before I finish, before I finish this particular point, this new mobile phone app, which is being this mobile phone app for tracking and tracing the coronavirus, which has been launched on the Isle of Wight. Now, to some people, that might be really kind of distant, sort of jargonistic, techie, just not interesting. Mm. And that's fair enough. Like, to be honest, before writing about this, I probably wouldn't have been interested in a mobile app being, you know, rolled out on the Isle of Wight. Um, But if this app is successful, it could be a massive step towards easing the lockdown in a pretty significant way. Or if it's not successful, then what does that mean? Does that mean that mm-hmm. our, our country's our country's kind of project of getting out of the lockdown is delayed by another month? 
Um, and obviously that would have huge ramifications for the economy, blah, blah, blah. So that's clearly in the public interest to pursue that. And thirdly, what I found quite funny or ironic is before the government introduced these questions from the public, I think it was about two or three weeks ago, a lot of journalists were getting sticks saying, stop asking when the lockdown's ending because it's a stupid question. And now half the questions from the public have been asking when the lockdown's ending. So actually, I don't think the difference between what the public wants to know and what journalists want to know is actually that massive. I mean, is every question asked in these press conferences a brilliant question? Obviously not. Um, I think journalists, because we all work together, we all talk together on WhatsApp, we're definitely guilty of groupthink. And there are definitely occasions where some journalists might be focused more on their front page tomorrow morning rather than the pursuit of a particular issue. And not every question is a paragon of like forensic, um, concise questioning. But generally, I think think journalists have done a decent job. And um, if you want good news, if all you want is positive news, then subscribe to the government press releases. so that's my very. <laughs> that's I, I my, couldn't agree more. That's my uh, uh, in response fantastic to answer. That question. I, I yeah. want none of my future responses will be as long as that. I promise. <laughs> Please, I would never complain. People <laughs> aren't here. People aren't here to listen to me, Adam. <laughs> I've, had to, I've had to take a drink because of that. From uh, from the Adam mug, by the way, everyone. everyone I saw yeah, Adam mug. See that? Yeah, it's got my it's got my name on it. Uh, keep the it Adam up. mug. Shout out to the Adam mug. Um, so you know. Once again, you brought it up there very well. Um, where it is it, one of the differences between covering Brexit and covering COVID, this sense of, I guess, immediacy. So Brexit was al- almost, it always felt like uh, a deadline al- along, you know, along the road. It felt like something which is like we're approaching a deadline uh, and then it keeps getting extended or when's it going to happen rather than a consistent, persistent, and um, daily evolving issue like. Um, like COVID is, is this sort of, is there more of a, a more of like a, a, a passive versus, um, I guess, consistent and reactive um, coverage uh, across these two issues? Or are they, are they far more similar in terms of dealing with the, the daily changes and updates? Hmm. I'll say, um, I guess, I, I think that there is, in terms of immediacy, they both, as issues, they both had immediacy in the sense that, in a quite simple sense of the word, that every day you just have ridiculously busy days where there was just news, 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 news. So practically speaking, uh, on, on, a, on a busy day in, in, in the world of Brexit, you might be writing like bam, 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 like, I don't know, half a dozen or more articles a day. And they're, and they're by their nature immediate. And the same with the coronavirus. Um when the government announced it, well, like on Sunday evening, when when the Prime Minister did his televised statement, that was a very immediate story because it was a number of announcements made within quite a short space of time. But I think a more kind of perhaps nuanced point is that with Brexit, as you said, that was played out on, I guess, on a more clear um, time frame. So, for example, you'd know that Brexit Day was March 31st. So then if Article 50 gets extended, it gets pushed back to whenever it was, October the 31st. And the way the story played out with Brexit was obviously working towards a specific date. And that's kind of how the story developed. 
but with the coronavirus, nothing is, it's so, we're, we're unsure over everything. So we don't know, we don't know when, obviously the, the government scientists had an idea of when the peak was going to be, but we didn't have a fixed date. And I think they were about two weeks out in the end. We don't have a clue when there's going to be a vaccine. Um, let, there might not be one. I, I hope to God there is one. Um, but we don't know when there's going to be one. It could be six months. It could be two years. We don't know when you'll be able to go for a pint again. Um, so it's just it's just a very different terrain. It's a very different terrain to try and navigate. With, with Brexit, although so much of it was unprecedented and chaotic, there was still lots of concrete things you could grab onto. Like, right, this vote is this day. Brexit day is October. The EU Council summer is on this day. But with coronavirus, you, you really don't know when you wake up in the morning what the news is going to be um, because we don't really understand the virus, right? Um, so I guess with the coronavirus, there is a less sense of immediacy because you, you don't know where this is going. It, I think it's difficult to it's difficult to have a perception or to perceive immediacy when you don't have a clue where this is going or where it's going to end or how long it's going to be. But with Brexit, you had very clear deadlines and cliff edges. That term became really popular in Brexit reporting. So you did have a sense of um, immediacy. How has this immediacy um, impacted uh, yourself and your, you know, your, your daily coverage in that? Is there almost a sense of I guess reassurance in having like a fixed date or having this sort of cliff edge. Did it make it more stressful in its daily coverings? Did it make it? M did you feel more of a need to investigate even further and further because there was a, a deadline to where this would be over? Or is the issue of COVID far more stressful to deal with because it is, you know, seeming there isn't a very clear definitive end in sight? Um, I think that. I mean, as I said before, generally, COVID is just a more stressful, um, emotionally taxing issue to cover by definition. Um, I think that's quite an interesting question. So I think obviously on the Sunday when the prime minister gave us a, a vague, sorry, timetable of when we might be able to do things. So it was like in June, we might be able to um, open non-essential shops. We can have the Premier League back uh, in July maybe some restaurants um and then in the autumn maybe some pubs and even though that's quite a vague sort of nebulous timetable i guess from, from my point of view it as i said in my previous answer just kind of things to hang on to kind of you can kind of you can visualize the next few months and what you're going to be reporting about and what you're going to be looking at so i just think from purely journalistic point of view that is less stressful because you the problem was Hugh that a few weeks ago like we didn't have a clue where this was going there was no sense of roadmap so often you didn't really know what you should be covering at certain times and then or when when's this issue going to become not interesting mm. how long is this issue shelf life um and so I think it's, it's easier to make decisions about just your editorial strategy when you have got a clearer sense of what's coming. But um, for example, a few weeks ago, I wrote a story about PPE and how uh, there was a guy in Merseyside in Liverpool and he offered the government, I think it was 10 million face masks that he'd sourced from Germany. It ended up being quite a big story. 
Um, uh, a few other places covered it, the Guardian Channel Four and stuff. And but then I, I, I was thinking to myself, well, how long is PPE going to be an issue? Like, are we going to be suffering PPE shortages for two years? Like, how many more of these stories am I going to do? And at what point, you know, how how many of these stories do I write to the point where I it stops being interesting? To be honest, like, how many stories about PPE? companies not having their pp offers being accepted how many times can i write that to the point where it stops becoming interesting or even instructive um so yeah i, I think when we do have these milestones to aim for gov things the government's aiming for um it's a lot easier i think or less stressful to come back to original wording of your question it's a lot less stressful i think mm. uh, journalistically so um you know, you, you... I think mean, one thing I think I've uh, I've noticed in in a lot of your writing and your coverage, um, you know, issues like COVID and Brexit, you know, they they seem so large and expansive and all encompassing that it can be um, difficult to I guess sort of ground them. Uh, and I guess my question is, you know, something that I've potentially noticed uh, in your work is you tend to have quite a quite a localizing like uh, consistent sense of like localizing issues. So for example, um, you had an article about you know three quarters of UK truckers to go out of business from two months of COVID or one about, you know, the closing of call centers and construction sites. Is this something that you try and consciously do when covering, um, you know, crises such as these is to uh, localize them and make them quite grounded in, in, in your coverage. And, and if so, why? Well, firstly, thank you very much for reading my work. That's <laughs> genuinely really lovely to hear. So I thank encourage you. everyone else to as well. Please <laughs> and do. Secondly, Adam, Adam Payne 26 on Twitter. That's correct. Uh, secondly, I do. Yeah, that is deliberate. Actually, I'm really, I'm just really glad you've, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really nice to hear someone. So basically, Hubert, and this all dates back to when I, when I first really got my job as a full-time reporter, and I decided I wanted to do Brexit. That was my thing. At the, uh, at the Tab Liverpool? Well, that, <laughs> the things I was writing about the Tab Liverpool were, were, were different than the Brexit. But, well, yeah, correct. So, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, that's where I began my journalism career. Um, but I guess what I realised, Hugh, was that I took a bit of a risk, I guess, and that I wasn't an expert on the European Union. Or I had like a university degree level of it, a level of knowledge of it. But what I realised was that we were dealing with such massive subjects. When you talk about the single market or supply chains or, um, you know, um, kind of a border checks, like these are such just kind of massive, all-encompassing things. And it's very difficult to illustrate why it matters. So I think one of the, just going, it's going to be, this is going to be kind of tan tangential for a second, but um, I think one of the issues the Remain campaign had back in 2016 was that it was so obsessed with talking about things like GDP and growth. And when you say that to most people, understandably, they, they don't they, they know what these things are, but they don't understand why this matters to their lives. So when I was reporting, I thought, well, there's got to be a way of writing about supply chains which is interesting and which can actually illuminate the issue. So as you said, what I've tried to do in my reporting, particularly my Brexit reporting, is really focus on quite minute examples of things because often those examples can be microcosmic and represent a wider issue. So for example, 
um, when I was writing about Brexit, I wrote about food quite a lot. I wrote about how um, uh, supermarkets who were stockpiling food were running out of places to put their food. <laughs> and that, to me, that's much more interesting than just saying, oh, there are supply chain issues. Like, mm. it, 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 like for, for readers, it's much easier to visualise like um, a factory, like a factory full of food and there's nowhere else to put it. Um, or with the, um, you, you talked about something I wrote about recently, how Hawley's truck drivers really fearing for their livelihoods. Um, I just think when you really focus in on a particular, very small section of the economy and focus on that for a story, it's much more, well, you can get a lot more, a lot more into it. If I try to, if, when you try to deal with the whole economy in one article, it's often very broad brush and you don't really focus on anything specific. So what I've always tried to do is focus on very minute, almost like microscopically focus on little things which are interesting in their own right, but will tell you something about the, um, about the wider picture. And also often the most kind of ridiculous stories that's where they exist um when you is when you have conversation like when i was writing about brexit and i was i was having conversations with people who work in the food industry or who logistics and they deal with cross-border trade if you just ask them for some examples of things so if you said oh could you give me an example of what that actually looks like in practice and they'll say something and you'll be like bloody hell that's ridiculous that's like i never thought that was happening and so often those little tiny details i i think are much more interesting than kind of really kind of big general points about uh you know bigger issues so i'm very i'm actually really glad you said that because that is i think i'd probably if i was to be if, if someone was to ask me what kind of ties my reporting together i think that's probably it that i really try to focus on little things and then hopefully those little things will be interesting in their own right and perhaps also they can be representative of something bigger which is going on i think it is something that i i, I definitely picked up on uh, in, in reading your work um is is that you know the localized aspect of, of what you do and I, I think i i especially appreciate it because journalism and politics often gets you know accusations of being quite insular or even potentially like elitist at times and you're sort of all one big club uh, and I thought this was amazing at not trying to, you know, in like a CVC bite-sized way of like trying to dumb it down, um, which also some people get accused of doing, but making an issue in a a very digestible, interesting, and also oftentimes more, um, I guess, probing and uh, ex exploratory way in that it is so much easier to conceptualize you know I'm, I'm a uni student politics student i do i have to read a lot of these these sort of things you know constantly and also i do because i'm a massive politics nerd um and I, I, find, I find yours so much one easier to interesting and oftentimes more helpful because it can give such a uh, grounded insight into um into what was happening um so yeah that great great work i guess <laughs> well thank you very much that's really kind um <laughs> Uh, no, I can't. Well, I can't leave. Really, I can't really add anything to what I've just said. It's really lovely to hear you say that. So I will. I'll try to do some more. <laughs> please, please do. <laughs> uh, so on to the you know on a, on a, about the sort of you know we brought up a couple of times the like constant nature of covering um, these crises. Uh, 
and you also brought up, you know, when you're reporting on PPE, for example, you were concerned about things like, you know, the shelf life and how long is this going to be a, a major issue in, you know, public discourse. And I, I, I'm, I'm wondering when the news is so constant, you know, for example, in, the, in Boris Johnson's coverage, there was you know, 15 news alerts that had, you know, that are going out while, even just whilst he's speaking. Um, is there a struggle to, or is this something that's always in the back of your head, which you try and balance between this being that the the pure information side of things but also things like shelf life things like headlines things like oh are people going to actually care about this as much or is it just me is, is this something that is difficult when covering an issue which is so constant and so persistent yeah that that's i think that is a challenge for a lot of journalists i i think that but a lot of it comes so a lot of it i mean the, the first point which is probably a, a, a not as not as exciting point is that I'm a reporter, but I wouldn't say I'm a reporter in the same way that Beth Rigby's a reporter or, um, um, I don't know, Paul Brand at ITV. Mm -hmm. They are, usually, they will tweet every piece of news, usually, because they're, they're news reporters. Um, if you go into Paul, I don't know, if you go into Beth Rigby's Twitter, get the political editor of Sky, for anyone who doesn't know who she is, if you go on her Twitter feed, you'll probably see 20 tweets that day. Um, more some with links to stories because she's reporting everything that's happening like bullet points, like bam, 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 bam. Um, I'm not, re my job's not like that in the same way. I do write news, um, but we, a business insider, we don't necessarily write every story. Mm -hmm. We're quite selective in terms of what we write. So, um, for example, just an example of that, you um when when matt hancock the health secretary met his well apparently met his target of um so x amount of tests hundred thousand tests mm -hmm. by the end of the month we didn't write that because we don't really have an audience for it there are other publications who are going to write that better than us we don't really have anything to add to it so i guess we're a bit like for publications like buzzfeed for example or um politico who like us won't write every story so where, where's this going? I personally don't feel that pressured um, if I'm watching the Prime Minister in the House of Commons, for example. I'm not sat there like, right, what's the line here? I need to get a headline up. What quote? Scribing down the basin yeah. each word. Um, sometimes it will. Sometimes the Prime Minister will say something and I'll be like, right, that's a story. That's mm -hmm. you know, linked to what I've been writing about recently. And, and I can do that whole hustle of, of writing a new story. But my, I feel quite lucky, actually, that because I'm not expected to write everything, mm -hmm. I'm not constantly there, like trying to juggle the acts of listening to what someone's saying, but then also trying to write a story. So I think I'm actually quite thankful at the moment that I'm not a reporter. The people who do this are just fantastically talented people um, who write everything, write all the news. In in this current climate, I think is is mm -hmm. in, it's, you've got to have incredible work ethic to do that, and. Um, so no, so actually I, I'm not I'm not really struggling with that particular aspect of it. I think I think um, because Twitter is I think Twitter is so um, widely used now among journalists that Twitter is a part of journalism. Mm -hmm. uh, you ha you have to d talk about it as a part of journalism to say where that newspapers are or, or, or the um, you know or articles. I think one thing. Um, uh, I'd say is that when there's a story happening, because as a journalist, I kind of 
treat 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 sorry my twitter account that's quite a hard thing to say i was treating my twitter account as a public um a public facing source of information like i'm a journalist so often if there's a big story happening i might feel under pressure to tweet about it even if my tweet isn't really offering anything new or if it's just an opinion which no one really asked for um you might, I sometimes feel pressure to do it because you need to look like you're involved in the news. You need to look like you're on it. Even if it's just something as trivial as like tweeting something an MP's texted you about the story. Um, that's what I've been trying to grapple with. Like I should resist tweeting just for the sake of tweeting because often it can just lead to quite banal, vapid, forgettable things. And I've only done it because I feel under pressure to be involved in like the scrum of news and like the yeah, in the yeah. chaos of it. But I actually do think I'm getting a better handle on that now. I'm I'm kind of, I'm weaning myself away from uh, being on my phone all the time. But that pressure definitely still exists. That pressure to always have something to say, to always be involved in the scrum, as I said, that definitely definitely exists. And I think a lot of journalists probably feel that way. I hope. Is this is this something that you think has been becoming increasingly prevalent in journalism? Is since you know. It, a lot of the time a lot of journalists are much more less than being about publication they're much more of almost like a personal brand what with them being very front-facing in terms of twitter you know rather than being the name behind an article they themselves are constantly publishing these sort of things is is balancing i guess the traditions of uh, journalism practices and integrity with the fast-paced public-facing show, social media um world a difficult one to sort of um i guess balance between you know obviously you, you brought up issues with constantly uh, you know trying to appear like you have something to say and that you're constantly involved are there any other issues around this sort of relationship that you found yeah that's interesting because i think when we look at twitter and journalist like tweeting as a journalist and I, i'd say i'm quite an active tweeter generally speaking and adam Payne 26 there we are. We'll try and get it in five times for the end. That's I can two. do that. Um, so, so if you're taking tweeting as a journalist um, and then articles you write, which is also what I'm paid for, I'm not paid to tweet. If mm -hmm. I was, bloody hell, I'd be... <laughs> yeah. It'd be a good life. Yeah, I'd be owning an Islington, not renting an Islington. Um, I think it's not, it's not mutually exclusive. It's not completely binary because often... I can tell you, for example, that most of Business Insider's traffic comes from social media. So if I happen to tweet a story I've written and that tweet goes viral and that directs traffic to my article, then that is a positive contribution to what I'm actually paid to do, which is to get, you know, to get people to read our website. Um, so there's that which can't be ignored. Um, but there is another point in that what I find interesting, and I'm not sure if this is a good thing or a bad thing, is that there is stuff, to be honest, which as a journalist you get told or that you know or that you can offer to discourse that you can. it's probably worth a tweet but probably isn't worth a story. Um, and you think to yourself, I could tweet this now and it might be an interesting tweet um, or I could kind of keep it in my pocket and then maybe save it for a story next week and what's interesting about that is that now at least for me i'm giving probably as much thought to twitter and what i can tweet to 
to what I'm going to, what I can withhold to put in stories or what I've been told that I can mm-hmm. write about. Um, so I think there is a tension there. And I, I mean, and, and another point I make as well, there are some stories I will write, which I wrote tweet about because it might be a story which has been commissioned to me, but it's not kind of my area. It's not what I'm known for. Like, I think if people follow me on Twitter, they'll associate me with Brexit reporting and um, particularly the techie side of Brexit. They won't associate me with some of the news stories I'm writing in the morning. So I'll I'll deliberately not tweet them. So I, I, I guess there is a definite set. There are two different kind of planets almost. <laughs> like what, what I write for Business Insider um, the, the, there's definitely a separation between that and my Twitter account and um, as I said I'm not I don't think this point I'm making has an end um, <laughs> it's, more, it's more of a ramble around without the a magic of editing can give everything an end Adam don't yeah. worry um, so yeah but I, th- I think the point you raise is a good one because as journalists as, a, as someone who became a journalist in 2016 mm-hmm. I inherited Twitter I had Twitter already Um but there are other journalists who've been in the game longer than I have who have had to kind of adopt Twitter. They, they, they didn't have to worry 20 years ago about tweeting something. They just had to file their story by, I don't know, X time and then go on. But now Twitter has added this even more, the greater sense of journalism never switching off. Like, you know, Twitter doesn't sleep for anyone. I mean, newspapers have a deadline. And if you miss the deadline, then... Obviously, you've got the website, but with Twitter, yeah, it's interesting. And I'm still, as I said, I'm still, I'm trying to be on Twitter less. I'm still, I'm trying to resist that pressure to be involved in, to be involved in Twitter. And I think, and I think I've heard Lewis, talk, Lewis Goodall talk about it before as well. It is something we, I, you know, I, I do think about it a lot. I do think about how my, what I'm writing, what I'm tweeting, kind of um, how it, how that works together. I think, um, you know, as we've talked about at great length at this point, the you know you've been covering two massive, very constant, consistent you know crises, Brexit and um, COVID. I think that sort of plays into the the Twitter issue, where it is you know journalism never switching off. Um, as you say, uh, they sort of pair quite unfortunately well together. Um, and I guess uh, the the wealth of topics we, we've covered across these two issues, what would you say has been um, the number one thing that you've learned about covering these two historical all-encompassing events um within such a short period of time what what is the what is the main thing you you have i guess uh learned or had to adapt to um from covering such massive massive issues Ooh, what have i learned um i think i mean this this applies to all facets of life or most I'm pacing yourself. Um, I think when something becomes a massive story, you know, you are tempted naturally to kind of the first week of that story, just go all in and work massive shifts, you know, get all, get all, I'm not against working massive shifts, by the way, but, um, (laughs) but one thing I realized with Brexit was that, um, you know, some, some, to be honest, Hugh, I'd get to the end of some weeks and just be absolutely knackered and not just knackered in the sense that I was tired and would go to bed early. I would be completely mentally just nothing left. I'd, I, I'd struggle to just like, I'd struggle to, um, to entertain a thought process. 
and that's because I was some weeks I, I was doing too much and I when I was I know, I know I mean to us I do this at uni to be honest like I work quite good in the evenings for some reason and sometimes I'd be sat there at home and I'd be like well I might just write a bit more of this article and then I'd sit there until 11 p.m write an article and I wake up in the morning just not in the right place to do a day's work so I think just pacing yourself is what I've tr- well, well is what I've learned or I've learned the importance of anyway I don't know if I if I do it myself <laughs> but um but as I said you could apply that to many um, areas of life um in terms of the subjects themselves I think that um with politics generally I think this is kind of philosophical, I guess, but often it's quite trendy to say that people don't care about politics or that people only care when there's a general election or mm-hmm. that people all think people think that all parties are the same and you can't trust them and it doesn't really matter what you know what you um how how you vote or whatever. But people actually do care. Um a lot, you know, so, some of the stories I've written which I, some we've, we discussed earlier, which were quite, esot- I thought were quite, my fear was that they were too esoteric and they were mm. too niche and no one would really care. But then when you look at which stories perform the best, often it's the ones which are really niche. Like people do care um, and people do care about politics. I, I, I really, I just, I just hate this, um, this lazy, this lazy kind of, um, dismissal of people as being not interested in politics or being apolitical just because someone doesn't sit there and watch question time i mean i don't watch question time it's awful but, uh, just because don't tell lewis that but um um just but people are political in different ways like people might not be party political they might not have a membership card of the labor party but they might be incredibly opinionated and and have really strong convictions on, on what britain's place in the world should be for example um, so I, I have learned that people are actually more interested in politics and I even thought, I, I, and it's made me really dislike that kind of dismissal of people not being interested in politics um, I'm trying to think of something more focused on the issues, I just guess that um, just from a, I mean if you've got anyone listening who's interested in journalism and, and um, perhaps fancies a career in it, I'd say that you'll be amazed how kind of the birthplace of stories. So some of the stories I've written about, you know, crazy details of Brexit and how we're, we're running out of warehouses. And um, <laughs> one I wrote last year is about how the government realised that it run out of pallets to export things to you. Just these crazy stories. They can all just start with a phone call which you've got in your diary and you might wake up thinking, oh, bloody hell, I can't really be bothered with that. Like, what am I going to get out of this person other than kind of like a background chat? Um, so just be, I, I, you know, my, I think just being curious has been, it, it would be with, with Brexit, with Brexit as a subject, being curious and digging, kind of rummaging around to see, you know, to see what's going on has just been, has just been really fruitful. Um, with coronavirus, um, I think, as I said, this could be applied to many other areas of life, but giving yourself a break, like a few weeks ago um, when Boris Johnson was um, admitted to intensive care, like that had quite a significant impact on my mental health. I I don't know why it was that which triggered it. Um, I just, it really hit me hard. I was really anxious and I think probably 
stepping back from it, it was because that's that particular story. It, it was almost like if you didn't realize how serious this was until now, mm. the, prime, the prime minister's got it. Perhaps I don't know, but that's what that's what triggered it for me. And I actually took the next day off work to give myself a chance just to mm. relax and recover. So I th- and that actually was really effective. I felt much better after doing that. Um, so I also, yeah, just coronavirus has taught me to be a lot more aware of my mental well-being. You know, just to be sensible. Don't don't overwork yourself. And because ultimately. You know, when you care about politics or journalism like you and I do, you get involved. You get really emotionally involved. Like it's not it's not um, it's not like some subject at school that you don't care about and you're just trying to get like an acceptable grade. You you really care about it and you can take things to heart and things can really bother you. Um, So that's the other thing I've learned as well, too. um, As I've kind of got more experience in journalism, uh, just to look after myself a bit more. So following on from that, what would be your number one piece of advice to a uh, budding journalist or writer, whether it be how to uh, improve your writing or improve finding things for stories or just improve the general practice of journalism? What would be your, your number one, I guess, um, I guess, piece of advice for someone trying to do this? Mm, I'll give you two. Um, no, please. <laughs> it'd be a shame when I miss one out. I think firstly, and this kind of links back to the things I've said, that um journalists particularly in Westminster are definitely um guilty of groupthink at times and and pack mentality and everyone chasing the same story um when often the more interesting stories are in places you least expect to find them so as I said my Brexit reporting often was not often not about MPs or party politics it was about what's going on in this industry or what's going on uh, what's going on in Whitehall um so be curious, just just to think outside the box. Um, and secondly, I'd say that obviously I think political journalism is an intimidating world. You've got these big, you know, these big profiles, Laura Koonsberg, Robert Peston, um, Farsal Islam, Beth Rigby, you know, fantastic journalists, but also you know, really big characters. And mm-hmm. I remember when I first got this job and I was going to press conferences and I'd be sat beside someone like this and I'd be ner- I'd be nervous it'd be like it'd be like bumping into a musician <laughs> you like or a, a footballer or something um but you should never you've got just as my advice is that to remember you've got just as much right to be at a press conference or in parliament as everyone else does you know you might you not you might not work the sky and have 40 years experience but getting into journalism is bloody hard and if you've got that far then you deserve as much respect as everyone else so although it's often it's easier said than done because um sometimes you know being shy or hesitant are just completely natural responses to things but mm-hmm. you know don't feel like you've got to kind of vacate you've got to vacate the floor and let others take over don't feel afraid to ask a question because often you'll ask a really good question and your response the response you'll get will will drive the news for that day and just being if you can just grab a microphone and, and, and ask a question people just notice you and people are more likely to come up to you and talk to you they might remember you next time um so that's my advice just you know be treat others obviously with respect but treat yourself with respect as well you know you, you deserve to be there just like everyone else does fantastic well adam thank you so much for coming on What's uh, all right? 
This has been fantastic. I'm going to get it in for the third time today. Everyone follow Adam on Twitter at Adam Payne 26. If I, if you have, if you've somehow I mean, missed it, well, do manage your expectations. Don't, <laughs> we're really, really hyping this up. To, it's, it's oh, all... I couldn't possibly hype it up enough. Yeah. Well, thank <laughs> you very much for having me. I hope um, at least half of that was coherent and uh, made some sort of sense. Uh, but thank you very much for having me on. It's been really nice. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been fantastic. I hope everyone's enjoyed. Thanks for watching.